Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Not live, but just so close to being live that it's you, it's so difficult to tell the difference. Ladies and gentlemen, you know about civil asset forfeiture, don't you? That's the part of the your brain on the war on drugs where your local police department gets to uh, seize cars and cash and other assets from people who may never be charged, let alone convicted, of a drug crime. They forfeit what they've had seized from them unless they want to go to court and fight it. That takes money. Speaking of money, the police departments make money by doing this, which is why they keep doing it. But there's, we're seeing a little bit of a rollback now as legislators in many states try to um, diminish the avidity of your local police department for civil asset forfeiture. Not so on the federal level. Federal drug agents regularly mine Americans' travel information, according to USA Today, to profile people who might be ferrying money for narcotics traffickers, though they almost never use what they learn, the federal drug agents don't, to make arrests or build criminal cases. Instead, that targeting has helped the Drug Enforcement Administration seize a small fortune in cash, don't you see? DE agents have profiled passengers on Amtrak trains and nearly every major U.S. airline. Glad they don't discriminate. No, we won't uh, profile on Southwest. Drawing on reports from a network of travel industry informants that extends from ticket counters to back offices. According to an investigation by USA Today, agents assigned to airports and train stations singled out passengers for questioning or searches for reasons as seemingly benign as traveling one way to California or having paid for a ticket in cash. That surveillance is separate from the whole anti-terrorism thing. It's a lucrative endeavor. Remains largely unknown outside the drug agency. DEA units assigned to patrol 15 of the U.S.'s busiest airports seized more than $209 million in cash, cash money, from at least 5,200 people over the past decade. After concluding or surmising or guessing, the money was linked to drug trafficking. Most of the money was passed on to local police departments that lend officers to assist the drug agency. They count on this as part of the budget, says a former supervisor of the DEA group assigned to the airport in Atlanta. Quote, basically, you've got to feed the monster, unquote. That, ladies and gentlemen, is your brain on the war on drugs. And now... We've got the What the frack, ladies and gentlemen? You know about the uh, wave of earthquakes in Oklahoma. The state has experienced 100 fewer earthquakes this year, up to now, than it did by August 2015, according to the Christian Science Monitor. Geologists tentatively attribute this decrease in tremors to increased regulations on the fracking industries whose wastewater disposal practices have wreaked seismic havoc in Oklahoma and other states. They're not just picking on Oklahoma. Experts caution it's too early to tell if the quake swarms have been permanently quelled. A rash of 22 earthquakes earthquakes took place in Oklahoma in a 13-hour period early this January, occurring in the same geographic area, 
Woods County. I'm going there. Just one year before, the Oklahoma Geological Survey had issued a report attributing many of the state's swarm of earthquakes to oil-related drilling. According to Oklahoma state seismologists, the rise in quakes over the past few years is, quote, very unlikely to represent a naturally occurring process, unquote. Surprisingly, the Oklahoma Oil and Gas Association expressed doubt about the existence of a connection between drilling and seismic activity. And they're usually so fair. The rise in Oklahoma temblers is astounding. In in 2008, there were just two that measured 3.0 or greater. In 2015, there were 890. That's got to be just a nutty coincidence, don't you think, Oil and Gas Association? The decline in frequency of seismic events this year has occurred after the implementation of several regulatory measures intended to stem the processes that could be contributing to earthquakes. Won't you please stem your processes? That's a heartfelt plea from Hello, Welcome to the Show.
convidei para dançar Desviei do seu olhar Mas jamais esqueceria Quando você desapareceu É que fui lhe procurar Era tarde, eu me perdi Quando você desapareceu é que fui lhe procurar Era tarde, eu me perdi From the home of the homeless, from the edge of America, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. I wouldn't welcome you to any other on this day and date. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you're in one of those places where, you know, accidents happen and uh, you find yourself some week listening to this program, hoping to hear a new broadcast, a fresh podcast, whatever, and finding that it's, this is the same thing he said last week. Um... Rest assured that there's a uh, a way around that, and it's not you know calling up and yelling at the at the poor people who made the mistake. It's just go to harryshearer dot com or wwno dot org, and uh, rest assured that the freshest version of the show is always there as a backup, just in case. Just in case, I'm not saying you know desert your favorite station or podcast forum, but just it's there. It's not me. And it's there for you and for the children. And now we hear from the late Glenn Yarbrough singing the words of the late Rod McEwen. Soft, listen to the warmth. We can listen to the warmth. At least I think it's Glenn Yarbrough. I should have checked that. Amidst the grim predictions concerning climate change, a newly published study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences reveals certain ecosystems may be more resistant to warming temperatures than previously thought. We'll stuff this in the good news file, then. Researchers from the U.S. Forest Service, the Geological Survey, NOAA, the University of Georgia, how about them dogs, and Queensland University of Technology discovered mountain streams in the northwestern U.S. are warming at a slower rate than predicted, in turn providing crucial refuge for cold water species. All you salmon, come in here! The great irony is the cold headwater streams that were believed to be most vulnerable to climate change appear to be the least vulnerable, says a fish biologist for the Forest Service. The study focused on how rates of temperature change in mountain streams may affect cold water species that have been de deemed vulnerable or threatened, according to um, criteria established by authorities. These species include the bull trout. It's not a bull. But a trout, the cutthroat trout, Ew. West Slope cutthroat trout, 
even nastier, and the Rocky, Rocky Mountain tailed frog. Scientists found that mountain streams have, for the most part, successfully resisted temperature shifts that could have made them uninhabitable for these cold-water-loving fish and amphibians. Thermal habitat in mountain streams, they find, is highly resistant to temperature increases, and that many populations of cold-water species exist where they are well-buffered from climate change. Those are the conclusions. Cold-water species, such as the bull trout, which is a trout, not a bull, are thriving in mountain streams, contrary to predictions of declines of these species. And they're good eaten. Earlier this year, scientists were puzzled by a widespread die-off that seemed to plague over 17,000 acres of mangroves along Australia's northeastern and northern coastlines. Now a scientist from James Cook University has confirmed the die-off is likely a product of unusually dry weather and climate change. We've seen smaller instances of this kind of moisture stress before. I use a deal. Oh, but what is so unusual now is its extent and that it occurred across the whole southern gulf in a single month, said uh, a research professor at the university. What we're seeing is a natural process, but nature usually does this incrementally, not with such severity. We have never seen this before, unquote. Surveys from above the ground show that the die-off has affected more than 9% of the mangroves in a stretch larger than four, larger than 400 miles along Australia's northeastern coast. Where there's no harbor. The mangrove population in Australia is the third largest in the world after, that's right, Indonesia and Brazil. You win. That's according to Mangrove Watch. That's some good watching. Uh, it represents about 6.4% of the world's mangroves. In the states where the die-off is occurring, there are at least 20 different species of mangroves. They can store at least five times more carbon than terrestrial trees. Every mangrove that is lost is the same as losing five trees that grow inland, which means losing even a few hundred mangroves can have an exponential effect on natural carbon storage. The latest draft version of the TTIP agreement, that's the um, international agreement affecting trade and other things between the United States and the EU, could sabotage European efforts to save energy and switch to clean power, according to members of the European Parliament. A 14th round of the troubled negotiations on the deal between the EU and U.S. has begun in Brussels. A leak obtained by the Guardian newspaper shows the EU will propose a rollback of mandatory energy savings measures and major obstacles to any future pricing schemes designed to encourage using renewable energies. Environmental protections against fossil fuel extraction, logging, and mining in the developing world would also come under pressure from articles in the proposed energy chapter. But, you know, it's just a trade deal. News of the War, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. I think we've waited long enough. Better strap on your seatbelts. This is going to be a bumpy one. News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersall, Jr. Well, first of all, the good news about the bad news in Rio. You probably know by now the water in one of these uh, pools used for aquatic events changed color midway through the synchronized diving events. That was on Tuesday. Officials insisted the water was safe for competing after a larger adjacent pool used for water polo and synchronized swimming also turned green. Not with envy. 
and not with men. Mario Andrada, chief spokesman for the organizing committee, stressed that the pool was safe for competition. So the women's three-meter springboard continued. He conceded some of the athletes had been bothered by the water, but said that was a result of efforts to clean the pool. We reiterate what we've been saying all along. The water does not offer any threat to the health of the athletes, he said. In the first day of this water situation, one or two athletes complained about their eyes being itchy. He continued, this was a result that the first reaction when we saw the water turning green was to use one of the chemicals, chlorine, that is very common in swimming pools. We reduced immediately the quantity. We retested the water, and it was totally within the parameters. Andrada said officials were caught off guard by the pool's deteriorating condition. He said, quote, chemistry is not an exact science, unquote. That, ladies and gentlemen, you can take to the bank. The water bank. Rain the past couple of days made it even tougher to get the water color back to normal. He explained the changing color of the pool was the result of increased alkaline levels, much like aquarium water can turn green when not monitored properly. We can't use too much chemicals in the water because athletes are training in it, Andrada said. We certainly could have done better in the beginning to prevent the water from turning green. Once it turned green, we again made another bit of a mistake, unquote. Detecting mistakes is not an exact science, apparently. Now it gets tougher, ladies and gentlemen. Top executives at one of America's most prominent Olympic organizations failed to alert authorities to many allegations of sexual abuse by coaches, relying up on a policy that enabled predators to abuse gymnasts long after USA Gymnastics had received warnings. An investigation by the Indianapolis Star newspaper uncovered multiple examples of children suffering the consequences including a Georgia case in which a coach preyed on young female athletes for seven years after USA Gymnastics dismissed the first of four warnings about him. In a 2013 lawsuit filed by one of that coach's victims, two former USA Gymnastics officials admitted under oath that the organization routinely dismissed sexual abuse allegations as hearsay unless they came directly from a victim or a victim's parent. Legal experts and child advocates expressed alarm about that approach, saying the best practice is to report every allegation to authorities. Laws in every state require people to report suspected child abuse. USA Gymnastics failed at this, said the mother of a daughter who filed the Georgia lawsuit, which is still being argued. USA Gymnastics, the sport's national governing body, develops the U.S. Olympic team and promotes the industry at all levels. The organization touts itself as a big-time brand with sponsors such as AT&T and Hershey's. After the Olympics, its premier athletes will be showcased on a 36-city Kellogg's Tour of Gymnastics Champions that typically promotes a membership surge at gyms. USA Gymnastics would not disclose the total number of sexual misconduct allegations it receives every year. Records show the organization compiled complaint dossiers on more than 50 coaches and filed them in a drawer in its office in Indianapolis. The contents of those files remain secret, hidden under seal in the lawsuit now in progress. But even without access to those files, the newspaper tracked on four cases in which USA Gymnastics was warned of suspected abuse by coaches but did not initiate a report to authorities. Those coaches went on, according to police and court records, to abuse at least 14 underage gymnasts after the warnings. In the tuck position, and Fortune magazine has reported on the seven biggest financial disasters in Olympic history. Montreal, 
The games saddled the city with $1.5 billion in debt, thanks largely to the construction of the Ilstard Olympic Stadium. The mayor, Jean Drapeau, had declared the Olympics can no more have a deficit than a man can have a baby. To this day, the stadium is plagued by roof rips and falling concrete. Lake Placid, where the uh, U.S. hockey team's miracle on ice occurred, by the time everything was over, the village was an estimated $8.5 million in debt, a potentially crippling figure for a small vil- village of a few thousand people. Lake Placid ran way over budget. The state of New York agreed to a bailout after the president, Jimmy Carter, refused to cover the debt. Lillehammer, Norway, in 1994, they set out to stage a Green Games. The Norwegian city urged companies to use natural materials wherever possible and uh, did a recycling program. The total cost of the Lillehammer Games exceeded a billion and some believe the costs rocketed fivefold because of the environmental considerations. The city could only scrounge up a quarter of the cost. The oil-rich Norwegian national government ended up bailing out the city to avoid national embarrassment. The Norwegians don't like national embarrassment. Nagano Japan esti- spent an estimated $10.5 billion on the Olympics, uh, although we may never know the exact amount because the Olympic bidding committee destroyed its financial records over a corruption scandal. On top of that, the uh, spending efforts did not result in the expected Olympic tourism bump. Many would-be skiing tourists chose to vacation elsewhere to avoid the chaos of the Games. Athens, summer 2004. They may not have triggered Greece's financial meltdown, but hosting the Games surely couldn't have helped. The Greek government overran their budget by 97%, spending almost $11 billion on the events. Vancouver, winter 2010, ended up $630 million in debt after hosting the Games. Sochi, well, of course you know about Sochi. And the figure was final spending uh, uh, on the Games at Sochi. It was reported to have been $51 billion, but estimates now put the figure closer to $70 billion, an amount that, quote, eclipsed the sum total of all money spent on all previous winter Olympic Games. But you know why that is, ladies and gentlemen? Because the Olympics, it's a movement, and we all need one. Every day. Speaking of which, how about our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia's female athletes can compete in the Olympics, but they're banned from playing sports back home. Today, women living in Saudi Arabia cannot participate in state-organized sports leagues, national tournaments, or even attend their national team's games as spectators. Of the 150 official sports clubs in Saudi Arabia, none is open to women. A few underground running clubs have popped up where women run in packs covered by full hijabs. Why doesn't NBC show us that? The kingdom is experiencing a vacuum of Olympic-caliber female athletes. So how have four women been able to compete in this year's Olympics? Quartz magazine from New Zealand reports the answer. The IOC gave Saudi Arabia an ultimatum four years ago, include women in their roster or be barred from the Olympics, rather than flunk out. Saudi officials began sourcing talented women. 
they found women who had not been brought up in Saudi Arabia so they could have trained elsewhere to achieve the caliber of competency necessary to qualify for the Olympics. One grew up in California. A sprinter is a student at Boston University. Uh, A third trained in the United States. And the fencer on the team trained in Egypt. All four women representing Saudi Arabia could only amass the skills needed to compete in the Olympics by leaving the country they ostensibly compete for. By the way, I don't know if you noticed the Qatari team, not just the women, but the men are... uh, I think that the uh, kind word would be hirelings, mercenaries from other places that just signed on to, yes, I'll be a Qatari for a day. And, ladies and gentlemen, let us try the latest effort at efforting by the Army Corps of Engineers. A group of Montana and federal wildlife officials has expressed opposition to a $57 million concrete dam and fish bypass that the U.S. government says would help an ancient and endangered fish species in the Yellowstone River. The Army Corps and Interior Department are proposing the dam and bypass on the lower Yellowstone near the border of Montana and North Dakota. That's where aging pallid sturgeon have been trapped for decades downstream of their spawning grounds. But wildlife officials from a government-sponsored recovery group for the pallid sturgeon dismissed the project's alleged benefits for the fish as unfounded and purely theoretical. The group includes representatives of state and federal wildlife agencies and the Army Corps of Engineers. That's right, the Army Corps is ignoring some of their own experts in going ahead with the project. Why that never happened before, except in New Orleans, leading up to the 2005 flood. Let us try the motto of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Espelhado em seus olhos, maior me causa o efeito. De concha no ouvido, barulho de barro, de pouco de onda, de bombo de espuma e sal. Nenhuma taça me mata a sede, mas o sarrabulho me embriaga. Mergulho na onda vaga, eu caio na rede, tem que não cai. Caio na rede, tem que não cai. Caio na rede. Às vezes eu penso que sai com teus olhos o feixe De raio que controla a onda cerebral do peixe É, às vezes eu penso que sai com teus olhos o feixe De raio que controla a onda cerebral do peixe É maior do que o mar E quando ultrapassa o tamanho da terra E quando ela acerta E quando ela erra E quando ela envolve todo o planeta Explode e devolve pro seu olhar O tanto de tudo que eu tô pra te dar Se a rede é maior do que o meu amor Não tem quem me prove Se a rede é maior do que o meu amor Não tem quem me prove Se a rede é maior do que o meu amor Não tem quem me prove é maior do que o meu amor Não tem 
ninguém me prove Às vezes eu penso que sai dos teus olhos o feixe De raio que controla a onda cerebral Peixe É, às vezes eu penso que sai dos teus olhos o feixe De raio que controla a onda cerebral Recorded just moments before you're hearing it, this is the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. It was uh, only a couple weeks ago that Australia's national television broadcasting service, ABC, reported on dire conditions at a youth detainment center in northern in the Northern Territory where uh, a lot of indigenous people live. Now comes news from The Guardian of similarly dire treatment by the Australian detention centre set up to receive, that is to say, detain, would-be migrants to Australia over on the island of Nauru. Australia, in fact, must close its dire and untenable offshore immigration centres. That's what the United Nations has told the country following the release of Nauru files by The Guardian newspaper which has exposed widespread and systemic abuse on the island. Guardian Australia this week published more than 2,000 leaked incident reports which, received, which revealed a regime of routine dysfunction and cruelty, widespread sexual and physical abuse of men, women and children, massive rates of self-harm and suicide attempts among those detained, and harsh living conditions in indefinite detention. Where'd they learn that from? Speaking overnight in Geneva, a spokeswoman for the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights said we're extremely concerned about the serious allegations of violence, sexual assault, degrading treatment and self-harm contained in more than 100 incident reports from centers on Nauru, many of which reportedly involved children. Of the asylum seekers who've had their claims assessed on Nauru, 77% have found to be refugees, that is to say they have a well-founded fear of persecution in the country they fled and are therefore legally owed protection. The majority of Nauru have been held for more than three years. The Australia's government's own internal documents show the mental health of people in detention, particularly children, deteriorates dramatically the longer they're held without prospect of release. 
Thank God that doesn't happen in anywhere else in the world. Several arms of the UN have repeatedly condemned Australia's offshore regime, including the High Commissioner for Human Rights, the Committee Against Torture, the Special Rapporteur on Torture, the Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Migrants, and the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. But wait, there's more news from outside the bubble. Also, as it happens from The Guardian, the uh, British edition, this one, former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger jeopardized U.S. efforts to stop mass killings by Argentina's military dictatorship, which uh, held office between 1976 and 1983. How did he do that? By congratulating the country's military leaders for wiping out terrorism. This is according to a large trove of newly declassified State Department files. I'm sure they thought he'd be gone by now. The documents were released at the beginning of the week showing how Kissinger's close relationship to Argentina's military rulers hindered President Carter's attempts to influence the regime during his presidency. Carter officials were infuriated by Kissinger's attendance at the 1978 World Cup as the personal guest of the dictator, the general who oversaw the forced disappearance of up to 30,000 opponents of the military regime. Kissinger, in fact, was no longer in office after Carter defeated Ford, but the documents revealed U.S. diplomats feared his praise for Argentina's crackdown would encourage further bloodshed. During his years as Secretary of State, Kissinger had encouraged Argentina's military junta to stamp out terrorism. In contrast, Carter and Bignu Brzezinski made human rights a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy and were exerting pressure on Argentina's regime by withholding loans and sales of military equipment. That'll do it. The newly declassified cables show how Kissinger lauded the dictator and other officials for their methods during his visit. His praise for the Argentine government in its campaign against terrorism was the music the Argentine government was longing to hear, says one of the documents. By the way, that regime defined opposition as terrorism. The U.S. ambassador to Argentina said he was shocked by Kissinger's behavior, which included having an off-the-record private meeting with the dictator before the ambassador showed up. My only concern is that Kissinger's repeated high praise for Argentina's action in wiping out terrorism may have gone to some considerable extent to his host's heads, the ambassador said in a cable. There's some danger that Argentines may use Kissinger's laudatory statements as justification for hardening their human rights stance. Unquote. Officials in Washington were furious. Kissinger's praise for the Argentine government in its campaign was the music the Argentine government was longing to hear, said an official of the National Security Council. What concerns me is his apparent desire to speak out against the Carter administration's human rights policy. Unquote. The cables also gave a picture of the anti-Semitism prevalent among Argentina's generals who were convinced that Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, who happened to be a Polish-born Catholic, they thought he headed a worldwide Jewish conspiracy against Argentina. So they kidnapped the, a successful Jewish newspaper publisher, Jacobo Timmerman. Thanks to pressure from the Carter administration, Timmerman was freed, although stripped of his Argentinian citizenship, and expelled to Israel, where he told U.S. diplomats about the torture he'd endured. So the cables were released this week, but there's another reason why Kissinger might be front of mind at this moment. It, it was during a uh, debate, a Democratic debate in New Hampshire, that Hillary Clinton said this. I have had the opportunity to run uh, a big agency. I was very flattered when Henry Kissinger said I ran the State Department better than, better than anybody had run it in a long time. 
Munther Jones magazine earlier this year reported that Hillary Clinton and her husband Bill made it a practice to spend part of the holiday season every Christmas time at the Dominican Republic retreat of the late Oscar de la Renta, accompanied by Barbara Walters, Charlie Rose, and Nancy and Henry Kissinger. And this was Henry Kissinger lavishing praise on Hillary Clinton a couple of years ago. I speak of Hillary with admiration and affection. I find that when I travel around the world, that people say, when they talk of her, they talk of Hillary much more than of Secretary Clinton. But more important than that, she has emphasized the moral content that unites ultimately the people of the world. So it's been an honor to watch Hillary establish herself and our country as an advocate and as a spokesman for a world in which the weak can be secure and the just can be free. Hillary Clinton said at at another Democratic debate that Henry Kissinger was one of her mentors in foreign policy. And of course, uh, his defense of the week extended to um, W-A-E-A-K, I believe, extended to uh, aiding in the assassination of the Democratic elected president of Chile, Salvador Allende, when he was Secretary of State and National Security Advisor under Richard Nixon. I know it's confusing. It's almost as confusing as Donald Trump's definition of sarcasm. But it makes for another edition of Clinton something next here on the show. something the campaign years hmm. you know we've been up to the vineyard so many times mm. but huh, i never knew how beautiful it was up here in maine mm. it's gorgeous i mean George H.W. Bush may have been myopic about many things, but the seashore was not one of them. (laughs) That's one of the things I really love about knowing you personally, Henry. People who only know the public you never get to experience the gift of your wit. Madam Secretary, as you know, when dealing with the Chinese, wit is not a gift, it's a weapon. (laughs) But I do appreciate what you said. It reminds me of the flattery I used to heap on Nixon. Some of that was true. Well, I appreciate you giving me some of your time, Henry. Well, one of the benefits of staying just close enough to the Bush family is the opportunity to 
avail myself from Nancy of their hospitality whenever they're not here. Maybe that's the best way to enjoy their hospitality. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as it becomes more and more apparent that our friend Mr. Trump is going to implode like an old Vegas casino, I feel like I'm getting closer to what I think you once called nut-cracking time. Uh, the phrase was not my own, but it was nut-cutting time. Ah, well, I still have so much to learn. And since it's just going to get more hectic from now through November, I, I thought this might be a good time to, uh, I don't know, get a mentoring touch-up, I guess you'd say. Uh, if I may, Madam Secretary, <clears throat> I think your tough-mindedness about the nature of the breakdown in the global order speaks well of your assimilating your mentoring to date. Thanks. Hasn't been easy, you know, better than anyone with a nest of... Diplo freaks the State Department can be. Well, I think you and I agree that the so-called soft power is about as productive an instrument of foreign policy as soft-core pornography, with results that don't even last as long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't know about that. Trust me. At my age, even the hardest-core material is lucky to produce the merest hint of... I I meant... I think soft power does have a role to play, but but as... As a member of the chorus, certainly not as one of the featured soloists. Mm. That's why I admired your construct of smart power so much. The word smart affords such a salve to the egos of your fellow Democrats that they can easily distract themselves from the fact that we're really talking about power per se. <laughs> well, that's why I took the opportunity while I was at State to... Get to know some of our senior generals, mm-hmm. because they... That was very smart. <laughs> was that supposed to be a salve to my ego? Oh, no, no, no. In this case, it, it had the added advantage of being true. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So, as, as you look around the world right now, Henry, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's very clear what our challenges are. Yes. What do you see as our opportunities? So, Turkey, mm-hmm. they have an Islamist authoritarian president who's in the process of crushing opposition and dissent. And now he's cozying up to the Russians. Of course, because he feels we haven't been supportive enough. But as far as I know, we still possess a covert apparatus sufficiently powerful to, over even a weekend, take him into custody and apply sufficient persuasive techniques, including some targeted pharmaceuticals, to deprogram his Islamist cultishness. Uh, he shows up for work Monday morning, no worse for wear, but a much more dependable ally. And in return, we help him crush what's left of his opposition. Well, and of course, Congress doesn't need to have any role in that. Well, in fairness, they do have a role. Mm. Uh, ten years later, they can investigate it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with wit like yours, I'm beginning to feel sorry for the Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> now, Syria... This is a case where our proven competence at initiating and supporting assassinations of foreign leaders who may be in conflict with our interests Mm -hmm. could well be revivified, although it is ironic to use that verb in the context of assassination. (laughs) The Chinese will be fine. Now, of course, with any assassination, Mm -hmm. the immediate question arises, what happens next. Mm -hmm. So, there is a need to recruit and insert 
a suitable replacement president. Fortunately, an absolutely plausible candidate is at hand, in the form of Assad's older brother who is like him, an Alevite, but unlike him has no political background. An empty vessel, a clean slate. A useful idiot or savant. You could say that, <laughs> yes. Then, if that doesn't pacify the non-jihadist opposition, we help him crush them. That sends a message to the jihadists. Mm-hmm. Finally, mm-hmm. most importantly, mm-hmm. you find a way to keep the Afghanistan war from ending until after your re-election campaign. Because I'll be blamed for whatever happens after it ends? Of course. Even Nixon understood that. After a while. Cool. Listen, I, I don't want to monopolize your time at the shore. No, that's okay. Nancy's off antiquing. Mm, but I, I do have to go in and take a shower. Mm, people often say that after talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you going to the lobster boil at 7? Uh, we would love to, but... Uh... Diet? No, I I just hate seeing those living things suffer. Youthful angst and a middle-aged yearning to serve. Together they add up to Clinton something. The campaign years. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our friend the Atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. Addy the Atom, you enjoying uh, a little bit of uh, summer in Southern California? I sure am. What? You're wearing sunscreen, right? No, slides right off my neutrinos. It's too bad about that. Under scrutiny and facing possible federal fines, the owner of a Columbia, South Carolina atomic fuel plant has agreed to make safety improvements. You can always improve safety. Mm-hmm. Following a buildup of uranium that regulators could have resulted in a nuclear accident. Improve more safety. Westinghouse. You can be sure it's Westinghouse, right? Yes, you can. Must take steps at its Bluff Road plant before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission will allow the company to restart part of the facility that was shut down earlier this summer. The shutdown has resulted in layoff of about one-tenth of the company's workforce. The company will make improvements, says the spokesperson. The discovery of their uranium buildup, reported to the NRC last month, is a substantial concern to the agency. I'm concerned. You are? Not really. I'm concerned about my sunscreen sliding off my neutrinos. I'm I'm a bit self-obsessed. Really? Records show uranium was about three times the level legally allowed in the area where it was found. Is it legally allowed to be that high in another area? It doesn't say. Elevated amounts of uranium in a plant scrubber raised the possibility of a criticality event, one that could have caused a small explosion at the facility. Everybody's a criticality expert. Yes. Allowing nuclear materials to go critical is one of the most serious problems that can occur at a nuclear fuel plant, according to the NRC spokesman. Excessive amounts of radioactive material can cause a critical nuclear reaction. The Westinghouse plant... Nothing? No. The Westinghouse plant makes nuclear fuel for atomic power plants around the country. 
and they expect to meet their production schedules despite the shutdown. The NRC said Westinghouse will perform an in-house investigation of how the problem occurred. It's better than an outhouse investigation. You think? They'll revise their safety culture. So they'll all go see Carmen? I don't think so. Update maintenance procedures, improve equipment, and train staffers who operate and maintain the area where the problem occurred. The company must also retain an independent criticality safety expert to examine issues at the plant. Everybody's a criticality. No, you said that already. Hannah, the spokesperson of the NRC, said they're concerned because the scrubber where the problem occurred had apparently not been cleaned out. That's what led to the buildup of uranium. One of the things they're implementing is changes to their cleaning procedures, said the spokesperson. These kinds of events don't happen all that often, said the spokesperson. A former senior policy advisor at the Department of Energy said the amount of uranium over the limit is notable and could have proven deadly to plant workers. If an explosion occurred, the NRC said 29 kilograms of uranium are allowed in the area. Records show 87 kilograms were found there. Yeah, but they're just kilograms. Westinghouse has been the subject of about a dozen enforcement actions in South Carolina during the past 20 years. Maybe that's why they call it Bluff Road? Maybe. And the Chinese company with a major stake in the proposed Hinkley Point nuclear power station in Great Britain. That is to say, it's going to be built by the French, but with a large investment by a Chinese company. That company has now been charged by the United States Justice Department with nuclear espionage. Couldn't hurt. In a 17-page indictment, the U.S. government said nuclear engineer Alan Ho, 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 employed by the China General Nuclear Power Company, and the company itself had unlawfully conspired to develop nuclear material in China without U.S. approval and, quote, with the intent to secure an advantage for the People's Republic of China. China was seeking an advantage for China? I know. It's tough to believe, isn't it? The company has a 33% stake in the Hinkley Point project, which the new British Prime Minister has delayed because of concerns over China's involvement. It's timely. And Ukraine has announced it's planning to turn part of the uninhabitable zone around Chernobyl into a gas station? Into a large-scale solar farm. Chernobyl cannot be used for much. Farming is impossible, as are most other productive human activities. What about uh, hedge funding? That's not productive. But there's a lot of sunshine in the area which can be harvested and marketed using already existent power transmission infrastructure, according to Ukraine's environment minister. OilPrice.com reports, well, OilPrice.com reports that plans envisage the installation of 4 megawatts in solar capacity in Chernobyl by the end of this year. Two investment firms from the U.S. and four from Canada have already expressed interest in the project. Energy security is an essential priority for Ukraine, which has over the years proved unwilling or unable to pay for Russian gas deliveries in the manner as timely as desired by the Russian gas company Gazprom. So gas is gas in Russian? I guess. This led to a couple of gas crises that put under threat gas deliveries, not just to Ukraine, but for Europe as well. Clean, cheap, safe too deadly not to recycle, our friend the atom. And now, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Oh, a little bit more about the Olympics. 
The Daily Beast U.S. website has apologized for publishing an article that may have outed a number of gay athletes at the Olympics. Readers complained that some athletes who are not named but were identifiable from details in the article were from countries with harsh anti-gay policies. The reporter had used the online dating services, including Grindr, second reference to Grindr in two weeks, to get on this program to get dates with athletes. The Daily Beast said it had screwed up and later removed the article. U.S. Olympic skier Gus Kenworthy, who is openly gay, accused the publication of entrapment. Tongan swimmer Amini Fona said the Daily Beast, Fonua, sorry, said the Daily Beast ought to be ashamed. And the Society of Professional Journalists also criticized the ethics of the story. I would say they've got a lot of work on their hands this year. Brian McDonald has apologized for comments he made during a Canadian television broadcast of the Olympic swimming events earlier this week. He was in Rio to provide commentary for the CBC, was unaware that his microphone was still on when he made the comments during the women's 4x200-meter race, relay race. The CBC had also issued an apology. We sincerely regret that these statements were made and that they were allowed to go to air, said the CBC spokesman. To be fair, Brian's comments were related to the swimmer's performance, not to her as an individual. Their comments? A little 14-year-old from China dropped the ball, baby, too excited, went out like stink, died like a pig. Former Olympian, McDonald is a longtime swimming coach at the University of Toronto. Wouldn't you like him to be your coach? Of course you would. An Olympics commentator has been criticized after suggesting U.S. gymnast Simone Biles' adoptive mother and father were not really her parents. Al Trotwig referred to the Olympic gymnast's adoptive parents as her grandparents. As well as being her biological grandparents, they adopted her when her mother struggled with drug and alcohol addictions. Trotwig offered an apology as reported by USA Today. I regret I was more clear in my wording on the air. I compounded the error, error on Twitter, which I quickly corrected, corrected to set the record straight. Ron and Nelly are Simone's parents. And the identifiable Chinese flag has been at the center of a pair of controversies during the Olympics. It was flying flawed over the medal ceremony and then mixed up with Chile's flag on Australian television. The... Uh, Stars in the flag featured in the ceremony were parallel to each other. They should actually be oriented toward the larger star at a 36-degree angle. Mario Andrada, spokesman for the Rio Committee, apologized to the Chinese delegation for the flawed flags, revealed they were made in Brazil. He had said earlier that all the flags were made in China. And Australia's Channel 7 also apologized for misidentifying the Chinese flag as Chilean. The U.S. administration has apologized following the detention of Shah Rukh Khan at the Los Angeles airport, assuring such incidents will not be repeated. The 50-year-old Bollywood actor has his namesake on a U.S. no-fly list. He was detained for questioning and tweeted every damn time. American officials say what pops up during those checks is a name without any other detail to help draw a distinction. Khan's been delayed many times before. He says... Whenever I start feeling too arrogant about myself, I take a trip to America. And Gabby Douglas, a U.S. Olympic gymnast, apologized after coming under fire for not placing her hand over her heart during the national anthem for the team's gold medal ceremony at the Rio Games. She's seen with her hands at her side. I want to say thank you, everyone, for your support. In response to a few tweets I saw, I always stand at attention out of respect for our country. Whenever the national anthem is played, I never meant any disrespect and apologize if I offended Anyone, please don't take my medal. No, she didn't say that. The apologies of the week, ladies. The Olympic apologies of the week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave. Around the world via the internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it, harryshear.com and kcsn.org. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, available for your smartphone through stitcher.com, available as a free podcast. Think of it. At SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and WWNO.org. And it'll be just like the 50 national security experts who signed a letter supporting Hillary Clinton this week, not having been party to the creation of the Iraq War. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, playlist of the music heard here on, and a 14-times-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, all at harryshearer.com. And me, I'm on the Twitter at the Harry Shearer. show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station for the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the home of the homeless. <laughs>